When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The headroom and potential for growth has shrunk, and the reforms that are left to do are much more difficult politically, economically, and otherwise. And so we're seeing these economies slow structurally. On Wealth Track, why emerging markets are no longer a growth story. Funding provided by Clearbridge Investments, First Eagle Investments, Royce Investment Partners, Baird, Bill Miller. Research Affiliates, Strategus Asset Management, Women Investing in Security and Education, and Matthews Asia. Hello and welcome to this edition of WealthTrack. I'm Consuelo Mack. What's your exposure to emerging market stocks? Well, if you are like most Americans, it is minimal, if at all. And even if you have a well-diversified portfolio, owning most developing country companies has not been rewarding. As you can see from this chart, emerging markets have dramatically underperformed the S&P 500 over the last decade with low single-digit returns. Because of the poor absolute showing in comparisons, many investors have shunned emerging markets, whereas value investors have been recommending them. Among the reasons cited, emerging markets are where the fastest economic growth is. They look cheap, and eventually cycles turn. Laggards become leaders and vice versa. This week's guest is a leading emerging markets portfolio manager, but he is not persuaded by those arguments. Instead, he says there are other more compelling reasons to explore emerging markets. He is Andrew Foster, founder of Seafarer Capital Partners, which he started in 2011, and co-portfolio manager of two Seafarer funds. The flagship Seafarer Overseas Growth and Income Fund, launched in 2012, has $2.6 billion in assets and is rated five-star silver by Morningstar. It was recently added to Morningstar's very selective Thrilling 30 list, overseen by mutual fund maven Russ Kennel. As Kennel wrote, the fund's emphasis on defense and income has led to fine risk-adjusted returns. The much smaller Seafarer Overseas Value Fund, launched in 2016, is also rated five-star silver. Foster, who began his career in emerging markets in 1996, has extensive historical perspective, and he says while the main attraction of emerging markets has been their fast-paced growth in the past, that is no longer the case. I asked him what has changed. Well, I think uh, the growth rates of these uh, emerging economies have slowed, in most cases, structurally, with a few exceptions. And so the investment case for emerging markets is really, uh, first and foremost, companies and not countries. So countries, which many people have what they're looking at emerging markets, they've said, you know, should I be in India? Should I be in China? Should I be whatever? Right. So what's happened is, uh, I think when folks started really paying attention to this asset class, uh, which to my reckoning uh, began in the late 1980s, we had a lot of poorer countries uh, with uh, a lot of uh, economic growth potential that was being realized because the governments and the citizenry were working hard to reform those economies, in many cases make them more competitive, and the countries were experiencing a lot of macroeconomic or GDP 
uh, growth. Mm -hmm. And that led these countries to, to grow rapidly and in many cases for uh, households to experience income growth and uh, a lot of productivity growth ensued as well. In the backdrop, we had these companies that some of which were listed on very small, illiquid and highly volatile stock exchanges. They weren't the greatest companies in many cases, frankly. Uh, in many cases, they were downright mediocre. Uh, but because they were in a strong growth backdrop at the macroeconomic level, they nonetheless prospered. It didn't always translate to stock price performance. Sometimes it did, sometimes it didn't. But at least you had this benefit of strong uh, background growth. Today, though, a lot of those low-hanging fruits in these economies have been tapped out. And many of these larger countries have actually become much more wealthy, much more sizable. China, for instance, is now the second largest economy in the world. But the headroom and potential for growth has shrunk, and the reforms that are left to do are much more difficult politically, economically, and otherwise. And so we're seeing these economies slow structurally. But what I find interesting is that the, the quality of the companies in the meantime has improved a great deal. And in some cases, some of these companies are really quite impressive. You've been in the emerging market business since 1996. So you've seen the evolution in the emerging markets. Are, are there still any emerging markets that meet the old profile of rapidly developing where a rising tide lifts even corporate boats? <laughs> I think there are some countries, uh, probably India first and foremost, that's experiencing much more rapid rates of growth. Uh, India is large, has undertaken some painful economic reforms, and has actually managed to go through COVID pretty well, uh, such that its economy didn't stutter much. And as a consequence, it's growing pretty robustly, and it has a lot of uh, room for growth, so to speak still, particularly because its manufacturing sector is so nascent, its export sector is so nascent, and so there's a lot of room for it to expand into um, industrial and manufacturing activities and trade. Um, likewise, there's some smaller economies like Vietnam and Mexico that I think are um, potentially benefiting from a relocation of industrial bases, the building of factories, so to speak, uh, that would have otherwise maybe gone towards China is, is to some extent hedging bets and potentially relocating in some of these smaller economies. And they're also growing in a similar kind of old fashioned way. Uh, but I would say for many of these countries, they've attained a level of development, whether it's South Korea, Taiwan, China, uh, or countries in other parts of the world that have uh, really grown to a level where it's not, they're, they're actually sort of middle income. And uh, there's not as much room from, from them to grow from a low base any longer. Uh, unless they undertake some more difficult uh, structural reforms, which some of them uh, have been either unwilling or unable to do. One thing I want to draw your attention to and your audience's attention to is that a lot of the growth in the past of these countries was fueled uh, by their coupling with the rest of the world. They were growing because they were opening up their markets to foreign investment. They were opening up their markets to competition and they were opening themselves up especially to trade with richer economies. And that fueled a lot of their growth. Uh, so I think you have um, this situation where growing through coupling is no longer so possible. And it's been accentuated by the fact that a lot of Western countries like the US have sought to decouple some of their economic fortunes and trade uh, from the likes of China and other parts of the emerging markets. So the fringe benefit of this, strangely enough, is that I think they offer a real diversification benefit in the way they didn't do in the past. 
people hoped that in investing in emerging markets, they would get some sort of diversification uh, to their portfolio. But in fact, they often got a highly volatile, highly correlated outcome to their investments in the United States. But today, I think those links, those couplings uh, that drove the high correlations are actually declining. And I think we'll see a future where correlations between emerging markets and the US or the developed world are on the decline in the future. Is that happening yet? I, I think there's some initial evidence for it. I'm a person mm -hmm. that would want to see a lot of evidence before I really pound the table for that claim. Right. But at the margin, yes, we're seeing some decoupling in uh, investment returns. So before we go to the individual companies, I have to ask you about China. Yes. And so Seafarer, you are underweight China, deliberate yes. decision. Uh, when did you do that and why and what is your view now of China? We've been underweight China for the better part of five years. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say that our decision making was being driven by individual company selections versus a decision to say China's verboten. In fact, I still personally find China investable to this day. We continue to research companies there and invest there. But what we did start seeing was um, companies that were struggling to grow in a more difficult environment, domestically speaking, and particularly higher levels of government interference in companies' um, individual uh, operations and governance. And we began seeing that really in late 2016, early 2017. It was an interesting thing for us to observe because at the time, folks were really excited about what was then uh, a high rate of gro economic growth in China. China was still mm -hmm. growing six or 7% in 2016, 2017. Um, and uh, so people thought that the growth backdrop was, was quite conducive to investment, but we were seeing encroachment by government uh, right. interference inside the companies. And that gave us a clue that things were changing in China from, from an investor's perspective. To give you a quick antidote, we were invested in a, uh, a telecommunications company and they came and asked us uh, for permission to introduce a second board to the company. Uh, wow. There's the regular board of directors, but they wanted to install a communist party board to uh, ensure uh, full alignment with the party's objectives. And it was not clear to us who was going to be on the board, who was going to pay for the board. Boards ain't cheap. And even most in China, they're not. Even they in China, well they're not cheap. They don't serve mm -hmm. for free. But most importantly, what is, what is the power structure of the, the party board versus the actual corporate executive board? Who is beholden to who? And there were right. no answers available. And when we, when we couldn't get those answers, we said, huh, this is different. And I would say that that was something, you know, frankly, the law that allowed for this to occur has been on the books, I think, from the outset of modern China. But it was under the Xi administration that it was invoked. How prevalent is it in the companies that you are invested in in China? Uh, what is their, you know, their situation? Are they able to run themselves independently or, or how does it work? We, th we think that we can still find companies that can run yeah. themselves sufficiently independently for the right kind of motivations and produce good returns for shareholders. We're invested in a company to this day, I've invested for nine years now in a company called Xinhua Windshare. It's based in Eastern China. It's a media and publications company. And a lot of uh, folks uh, in the audience might be wondering, why would you want a media company in China? Mm -hmm. 
where the freedom of speech is maybe somewhat compromised, if not outright compromised. Right. And I'd say, well, this, this is a, an interesting little company that produces documentaries and educational materials for uh, domestic audiences. And it's, so it's really not, um, frankly, pushing the envelope against uh, the, 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 the party's agenda necessarily. In some cases, it may be advancing it. But it's a well-run little company, and it's got about a $2 billion market capitalization, but it has a billion dollars in cash, uh, Consuelo. So it has a lot of financial holdings that it's starting to turn into dividends. It, it actually pays dividends that are over 5% of the stock price. And it just recently announced a special dividend that will raise that yield about another 50% from there. Uh, so we're, we're expecting yields of, of closer to 7%, uh, at least for the next year. And it's been growing 30% in the last three years at the earnings line. And of course, you know, Andrew, your flagship fund, Seafair Growth and Income, uh, does stress income. So that's something that you're looking for uh, when you're investing as well. A absolutely. We, we do use income as a hallmark of many different things. Uh, we really look for uh, the, the dividend that a security a, a stock produces as a hallmark of both the company's financial fortune how liquid and solvent enough it is to pay that dividend. It helps us trace the quality of the accounting, but also really gain greater confidence in the underlying growth that's driving the corporate financial returns. Uh, we, we like the income because we think it provides more st stability to the portfolio's overall returns. This strategy that you mentioned, our growth and income uh, fund, was designed to try and tamp down on some of the volatility that's associated with uh, investing in the emerging markets. It's, it's not a strategy that seeks the fastest growing companies because many of them, frankly, grow for a time. But then when, when these economies, which are prone, frankly, to shock and mm -hmm. sometimes very deep shock, these fast growing companies sometimes don't survive or if they do survive, their, their growth fortunes are very hampered. So we don't believe in chasing some of the fastest growth companies in many instances. Um, that we might end up overpaying for if they don't realize the growth. We prefer these steadier companies that generate the dividends and temper uh, some of the volatility in markets. So, Andrew, your approach at Seafair is you, you run fairly concentrated portfolios. I mean, I think you've got, what, 50 or to 60 stocks in, the, in your flagship fund. And, uh, and what kind of companies are you looking for specifically? Right. Uh, so we, we typically have 40 to 60 uh, holdings, and mm -hmm. right now we have about 50 in our growth and income strategy. One of the things that uh, we focus on, and I think hopefully makes this uh, a bit different, is that we really are looking for longer holding horizons. Uh, so the research cycle is really uh, predicated on finding companies that can generate sustained income streams that are growing steadily over time. Uh, hopefully ones we can pick up a little bit cheap. Ironically, we're not looking for the biggest discounts that are available in markets because sometimes that can can connote uh, business distress. So we are looking for companies that are steady, steadily growing, that offer a little bit of a discount, but which we think can survive the many pressures and cycles that impact these emerging markets, and then manifest that growth that they're seeing in their earnings in a nice, steady, and hopefully rising dividend over time. We think that combination provides, especially at the portfolio, any, any individual company may experience risk and volatility, but when we wrap that up uh, to a portfolio strategy level, we think that can, we hope it can produce a more steady outcome for investors who still want to maintain exposure 
to this part of the world. And, right. But all of it is motivated towards finding companies we can hold for three, five, seven, ten years. We have fairly low rates of turnover in our fund, uh, typically in, in the teens. And that I think that's one of the things that we um, gain some comfort in, that we've really researched these companies well enough to hold them for long periods of time. I'm looking at your the portfolio, the top ten holdings. I'm going to ask you to to uh, talk about some of the specific companies that exemplify what Seafair's approach is. But I know you have Alibaba, for instance. Um, you've got Samsung Electronics, uh, Samsung Biologics. I mean, obviously, if they're, they're top ten, these are these are more household names. One thing when I said at the outset that it's really. Uh, companies rather than countries. I think one thing we spend a lot of time thinking about in a slower growth backdrop, but where we see greater corporate quality and excellence, we look at companies um, a lot that can expand beyond their home markets into their surrounding regions or even become global companies. Mm -hmm. uh, when I started my career, as you mentioned in the late 90s, uh, I gave an investment presentation to an audience and I mentioned that I thought uh, Samsung Electronics would one day be a semiconductor leader globally. And um, I, to be honest, I was somewhat laughed off the stage by uh, mm -hmm. uh, someone that followed me, uh, suggesting that Samsung wasn't very innovative and mostly was known for producing refrigerators and television sets. And right. that's true, it still produces refrigerators and television sets. I've got some. Uh, but it is also really one of the two leading semiconductor manufacturers in the world now alongside of another emerging market company called Taiwan Semiconductor, which mm -hmm. we don't, don't own for the audience's benefit. Uh, but the two leading semiconductor stocks in the world, uncontested, are those two, and they emanate from the emerging markets. The point being, there was a time when the emerging markets had mediocre companies, but fast-growing countries, and there were very few companies that you could point to and say, this one's going to be a world leader, or this one's going to be a regional leader. You can see it now in Samsung and, and, and TSMC, but I think you're going to see it, Consuelo, in many other com companies besides globally uh, in the coming years and decades. You're going to see emerging market companies that people haven't heard of come to become uh, regional or in some cases even global leaders in industries outside of semiconductors, in healthcare, in media, in fashion, in e-commerce. Can, can you give me a couple of examples of companies that you've identified that you think, as you did Samsung Electronics, uh, that you've identified as, as potential leaders either in, within their region or even globally? And one we own uh, directly is called Samsung Biologics. Uh, it's uh, actually uh, somewhat related to Samsung Electronics, the self-same uh, 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 semiconductor company I mentioned earlier. It's a, I guess you could call it a sister company, uh, but it is already the second largest producer of biological antiviral uh, materials in the world. It is, mm. uh, effectively a contract manufacturer for large pharmaceuticals. It uh, works with uh, seven of the top 10 pharmaceutical companies in the world, names that everyone would recognize, Pfizer, Moderna, Novartis, uh, Roche, uh, GlaxoSmithKline, the list goes on. Mm -hmm. And th the point being, uh, they, if, if these companies produce biological therapies or uh, antivirals, including COVID uh, vaccines, they will actually manufacture these uh, uh, therapies in large scale under hypoallergenic conditions with very precise biological technologies. And already this company is the second largest in the world at what it does. 
the largest company in the world happens to be a pharmaceutical company, uh, but it is the second largest in terms of capacity, and it will, based on its investment schedule, uh, likely retain that position or maybe even pull into first place in the coming uh, decade. We have technology companies uh, that design chips like NVIDIA, that I think most right. of your audience would know, and Taiwan Semiconductor that makes the chips for NVIDIA. I think you're going to see something ha similar happen in the biological uh, uh, pharmaceutical arena, uh, and uh, Samsung Biologics is one of the leaders today, and we happen to own that stock. And Andrew, you've mentioned Taiwan Semiconductor a couple of times. You did own that for a while. So why did you uh, sell your Taiwan Semiconductor holdings three years ago? Well, you know, it's a marvelous company. I still think extremely highly of it, and I invested mm -hmm. in it well over a decade. I continue to follow it to this day. Very impressive, very well-run company, very financially uh, uh, productive as well. The, the challenge I had was that the price became very, very high for it about three years ago, and the price hasn't changed a whole lot since that time. It's gone up and down, but roughly the same uh, since that time frame. Uh, the concern I had was the geopolitical tensions that were arising. I personally uh, think that risk is higher than it's been in the past it's of, a, of, a, of a war or some sort of military conflict. It is higher than it has been just about any time in my career. It's still mm -hmm. not a very likely probability. Mm -hmm. It's gone from a very remote one to a material one, but still a small risk. Uh, but at the same time, what I started to recognize is that risk would manifest itself in geopolitical pressure on the company in a way that was unwelcome. And in particular, what I, I began to worry about was that uh, three years ago was that the company would be forced to stop investing near its headquarters in central Taiwan, uh, that governments around the world in a bid to decouple their semiconductor production chains and reduce the risks that might happen if there was open conflict, they would force Taiwan Semiconductor to set up fabrication facilities in the United States, Japan, Germany, China wanted some too. All these countries would be putting pressure on Taiwan Semiconductor to diversify its investment base. And Which I was is concerned, happening, right? And it's and it's happening. That's right. exactly what's happening. Taiwan so Semiconductor is correct. pouring tens of billions, ultimately hundreds of billions, overseas, and that has happened. And I've yeah. been concerned that the rates of return from these investments would fall. So the attraction of emerging markets still is what, Andrew? Why should we have emerging market stocks in our portfolios? We have low rates of growth, but we have much better companies that okay. are expanding beyond their borders and who can grow beyond their country rate of growth, so to speak. I actually think that the silver lining of the decoupling that's happened in recent years, in the last five years, it, the silver lining is that these economies are on a different um, cycle now, for the most part. Right. And so I think there is a silver lining of a modest div di diversification benefit to, a, to investors' portfolios that may be very U.S.-centric or developed economy-centric. Mm -hmm. And they're pretty cheap again. Is there anything we should own, all own some of, again, in a long-term diversified portfolio? You're assuming that's diversified to begin with. If, if folks want to get some exposure to the emerging markets um, and they're not yet comfortable with a concentrated, active, low turnover strategy uh, like the one we manage, I'm going to recommend an uh, exchange-traded fund produced by Dimensional Fund Advisors, DFA, uh, called, uh, the ticker is DFAE. And it's a, uh, and it's, it is an index-like 
uh, passive strategy that gives investors a broad and relatively inexpensive way uh, to invest in the entirety of, or the near entirety of emerging markets. So Andrew Foster, what a treat to have you on WealthTrack. Thank you for explaining to us the changes that have occurred in the emerging markets uh, and how you are uh, approaching the emerging markets. We really appreciate it. It's my pleasure, Consuelo. At the close of every wealth track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is consider adding some emerging markets exposure to your portfolio. Now, the reality check is that emerging markets have been underperforming developed markets, the U.S. especially, for the last 10 years. That is not reason itself to invest in them. And they do tend to be riskier and more volatile than developed markets. However, as Andrew Foster just told us, there are some world-class, high-quality companies selling at low valuations available in emerging markets, which warrant your attention in their own right and can add diversity to your portfolios. Among Morningstar's top mutual fund picks are Foster's Seafarer Overseas Growth and Income Fund, which, as we mentioned earlier, was just added to Morningstar's very selective Thrilling 30 list, overseen by mutual fund maven Ross Kennel. Another top Morningstar pick owned personally by Kennel is the four-star gold-rated GQG Partners Emerging Markets Equity Fund. It's run by Rajiv Jain, who Kennel calls one of the best investors around and was a Manager of the Year Award winner. Another also in Kennel's personal portfolio is American Fund's New World Fund. Rated five-star silver, it invests in companies that derive the bulk of their revenues from emerging markets but don't have to be based there. Kennel says that combination means a little added stability thanks to better accounting standards and rule of law in developed markets, but still tapping the growth potential of emerging markets. Emerging markets are currently undervalued, unpopular, and underowned. all reasons to give them serious consideration. Well, next week, in case you missed it, you will be able to see our rare interview with Wall Street's undisputed king of economists, Ed Hyman. He's going to share his annual wealth track forecast for the economy, inflation, and interest rates with us. In this week's extra feature, Andrew Foster recommends two websites that keep him up to date on financial developments in China. Please follow us on Facebook and our YouTube channel. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We wish you a Merry Christmas holiday and hope the week ahead is a healthy, profitable, and productive one.